Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump in to today's conversation. My guest today is Deidre Rausch. Deidre has a degree in engineering from Purdue University. She's a structured thinker and is keenly interested in how the way we think impacts how we feel and what we do as leaders. Deidre's unique blend of business experience, cultural awareness, and a love of helping people to get what they want out of life prompted her pursuit of coaching as a profession. She completed the leadership coaching program at the Institute for Transformational Leadership from Georgetown University and founded her own company, TFD Leadership Coaching, in 2013. Deidre has spent two-thirds of her career living and working internationally. She maintains a truly global perspective, bolstered by assignments in London, Kuala Lumpur, Brussels, and elsewhere around the world. She has over 30 years of experience working as a leader, both domestically and internationally. Currently, Deidre lives in Northern Virginia, traveling when she gets a chance and enjoying her friends and family, while also continuing to develop her own authentic leadership style. She's also a 500-hour yoga teacher trainer and loves teaching yoga to beginners. Deidre, thank you so much for this inspiring conversation. Thank you for your passion for making life less difficult. It is truly a joy to learn about your journey, hear your wisdom, and be inspired by your vision. If you'd like to connect with Deidre or learn more about her work, the link to her website is in the show notes. Deidre, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Yeah. It is, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You and I have interacted a couple of different times through different venues, through Georgetown connections, through storytelling workshops, and then in preparation for this. And each time, Deidre, there's so many different stories and experiences that you've had that I will I will say here at the beginning that I know by the time we get to the end of this conversation, I'm going to say we haven't talked about enough. So I hope <laughs> that you'll consider this just part one and that we could do um, additional conversations in the future. Of course. <laughs> So as we begin, my first question is one that I like to ask all of my guests around the idea of making life less difficult. The name of the podcast, this work that I do comes from a quote by Marianne Evans, what do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And I'm very curious to hear, what does that mean to you? I think it resonates so deeply with me. What do you what do we want to do for others to make life less difficult? And I think, as I think about it, there's two things that really attract me to that. One of them is the research behind it. And so I think often about people like Charles Duhigg, who wrote about the power of habit and James Clare, who wrote about atomic habits. A lot of what they said was in order to change your habits and do something that you wanted to make your life better. It was just taking small steps in order to get to that bigger step. So I love the piece around the research, which says, you know, we, we can actually make our life a little less difficult just by making some smaller changes. Hmm. And then I think there's all the real life pieces of it that, that show up. 
um, because the world is such a crazy place right now. And every client I talk to, every friend I talk to always talks about how busy their life is, right? Just how busy it is. And there's no space for anything to be added into. I think this piece about making life less difficult doesn't have to be like, I'm going to lose 30 pounds by January 2nd, or I'm like at my PhD in the next year. It it really can be some of these smaller things. And I know my mom and I use that phrase a lot because she's the primary caretaker for my father and my father is really bedridden or in a wheelchair. And I'm always saying to her, how can we make your life a little less difficult? knowing that it's hard to make it, it's it's not ever going to be not difficult right now. And so I, I guess that's the other part of what resonates with me is life is always going to be difficult sometimes. Mm. And the situation my mom's in, there's no way that she or my dad are going to have an easy life now, but it can be a little bit less difficult. Mm. Um, and I often see this with my clients, right? They're in really difficult jobs. They're in really difficult positions. They're a physician in a hospital, which is undergone so many changes and they've been working um, remarkably crazy hours. So it's not enough to say, well, let's just make it so you have an easy life because that's probably not going to be a reasonable goal, but saying to them, what's one thing you could do to make your life less difficult? What's one thing that you could do that would make things a little easier for you? Um, I think it's a really important conversation. Mm. You have articulated so clearly how this phrase of this idea of making life less difficult resonates for me. And I it really does draw me to those times in life as you're describing, um, particularly around, you know, your mom and your dad in this phase of life for them. There's no fix. There's no magic wand. And we can, in those moments, look for ways to be there for each other and make things, like you said, just a little less difficult. Yeah. Yeah. For she and I, one of the things that I've done is every other month now I go home for a week and I plot that out in my calendar so that she knows when I'm coming. And it's been amazing that when she knows I'm going to be there, we'll A, have some fun. I'll also help things. I'll also help out around the house and with things she needs help. But just that small thing of me going every other month for a week has made a huge difference to her. And she and my dad both look forward to that. And they know we're going to do all these fun things and they know we're going to get stuff done as well. So again, I can't fix it for them and, but I can't make it less difficult. Yeah. It's really, it's a beautiful, beautiful example of that. Deidre. Oh, I think we're wired most of the time to fix things, right? I am wired that way for sure. Right. I just want to fix it. Right. And so I think that acceptance of within myself of realizing it's not to be fixed, but it can, I can make a difference in it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, I want to ask you a question and just kind of see where it goes for you. When you reflect back over your life and you have had so many different experiences living internationally, um, I resonate with that experience and moving and all, all of the unique challenges and benefits that that come up with this and then countless other experiences for you. When you think back over your life and you think about a time that you remember looking around and thinking, oh, wow, life is, life is hard. This is harder than I even thought it might be. What is a time that comes to mind? Yeah, I think for me, we lived in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for three years. And that was a big 
culture change for us from living in normally. We moved there from London, but it was a culture change in the fact that it was really the first non-Western country we'd lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an incredibly beautiful country with incredibly amazing people. And mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. But I have to say that I moved there. When I moved there, I had a 19-month-old and a four-month-old. Wow. And I was also working with Exxon at the time and I had to, I was not able to get a work permit um, because only one person in the couple could have a work permit by the Malaysian government, by the mm. rules of the Malaysian. So Exxon had said, we'll put you on leave of absence um, and you can come back when you're finished. But I was just back from maternity leave and um, I actually had to, when we left for London, I had to come home with the boys because um, they couldn't go to Malaysia until they'd had their full set of injections mm-hmm. and hadn't. So I came home with them, lived with my parents for four months, went back to Malaysia. So I didn't have my career at the time and wasn't quite sure how that was going to go. And I had two young children in a country that was still developing and um, the only hospital that was approved by the U.S. government at that time or by the embassy is recommended. Um, was about 45 minutes away. Oh, wow. And I also got pregnant with my third child there. (laughs) And I just remember thinking that life was really hard at that time, right? So many good things. And, you know, I always try to focus on the positive. And there were so many good things about living there. Um, And yet it was really difficult to live so far away from family with two young children um, being pregnant with your third. And we ended up having a crisis in Malaysia at the time where um, all the peat fields in Indonesia were burning and all of the, there was a lot of of air quality problems. Um, And I was actually doing some work for the ambassador there. And the U.S. government recommended that any non-essential people leave the country due to the rest. Oh my goodness. So um, I went to my resident, my friends in London when it didn't clear up. I went back home. My husband found out we were moving from Malaysia. And so I was living at home eight months pregnant <laughs> and wasn't able to go back to Malaysia. So it was, it was kind of a crazy time. Um, and so life was kind of difficult then. I really didn't have a home. Um, as my dad jokingly said, well, honey, I didn't think you'd move back at 35 with a four-year-old, a three-year-old and pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and no husband, because of course my husband wasn't with me at the time. Yeah. Oh my so goodness. Kind of difficult then. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess the the following question I love to ask, and thank you so much for sharing these. I can I there's a million different questions I'd love to ask, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask you this. When you remember those times, what and or who helped make that a little less difficult for you? Yeah, I think there's so many people, right? Like my husband was one of them because he actually, you know, he and I always tried to do what was best for the kids. And I think that having someone who supported, who supports you in doing what's best for your family as a whole is wonderful. Um, And he always said, Hey, you know, this is a short-term thing. We can do this, you know? And um, so he was always, he and I were always very much a partnership on making sure that the kids were going to be okay with this. Mm. And my parents who, whom I adore for many reasons, but one is they were always our safe haven. So um, I actually had my third child in, in not in their house, thank heavens, but But they were those people that made, they made my life much less difficult. And if they would have been more protective of their space or 
you know, less flexible, our lives would have been totally difficult. Um, and then I also had some amazing friends that just were always there. And I have some friends in London that um, were there when I had my two boys and I, they had their children. And so we formed this lifelong friendship that we still have today. And I knew if I needed to get out of Malaysia and stay in London for a while, I had a place to stay. So there were so many people that made my life less difficult. And as I look back, I think about my relationship with my husband, my relationship with my friends, my relationship with my parents, all those relationships really deepened in that time. Yeah. It's really beautiful, Deidre. And it's, it's, this has been my experience similarly too, where it's the people, it's the relationships who are just present for us. And I'm sure that your parents didn't even think twice. They didn't feel put out. They were very happy to welcome the, their, open their house and welcome you back home. And yeah, your dad joked about you moving home at that age with the, all your kids and stuff. But yet, you know, I'm sure if we could ask him, he would say that was, that was nothing. That was absolutely. And, and same with your friends and your husband. And it's just, um, to me, it's this beautiful reminder of how we can be there for each other and making life less difficult. It doesn't have to be an enormous gesture. It can yeah. be those little things. Yeah. It's just being there for each other. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to open our conversation up and kind of give you free reign to go in the direction that we had talked about in preparing for this uh, conversation around the work that you do with the leadership circle profile and beliefs. And I, I'm not going to say too much because I want to just turn it over to you and and take it in the direction that you go. But um, I feel like there's so much relevant to making our lives a little less difficult. So Deidre, I'm just going to stop talking and I'm going to say, okay. take us on a journey. <laughs> yes. I think when I first heard about your podcast and I was so drawn to the name, one of the things that came up for me is I do a lot of work with the leadership circle and I am on their debrief faculty for their certification. So I get to work with coaches on teaching them about the leadership circle and how to actually use that in their practice, which is, is really an amazing place to be. And I've probably done, now I've stopped counting, but somewhere between 400 and 500 debriefs with clients on the leadership circle. And this is the 360 assessment that really talks about what their um, creative competencies may be and what some of their reactive tendencies may be. And one of the three of the questions that we ask in order to look at beliefs and assumptions and um, patterns and habits are really questions around what shaped a person, like what shaped them as a person, as a leader. And there are three points in time. One of them is when they were growing up, like what were the people, places, or things that may have shaped you? It could be where you grew up or how many siblings you had, or if your parents were divorced, or if you had a grandmother that lived with you that was your best friend ever. Um, many things shape us as we grow up, and those often determine our beliefs and assumptions and our, our habits and our patterns. And the second was around work. Like, what about your first professional job and your work career has really influenced you, has shaped you, has made meaning for you? And the third question is, what about now? Like, here you are in the last two or three years. What's shaping you as a leader, as a person now? And I've always been both humbled and amazed about in a small 20 to 30 minute discussion around this, how deep people will go with telling you about 
what has really shaped them as a person. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the stories are heart-wrenching for me as a coach. And other times they're amazingly inspiring in this small time. And I think what has been so interesting is after all these conversations and then watching how those play up as we actually do the 360. So this is your up until now of what shaped you. And then as you look at that snapshot of time of where you are now, so many times in the reactive tendencies, which are those beautiful survival strengths we have that if we overuse, they actually become, they inversely affect leadership effectiveness. So you often find that things are getting in your way. And I think for me, the making life less difficult really resonated because sometimes we look at those beliefs and patterns and we realize that we realize that there's a belief and pattern that we've had that has been following us around that is no longer serving us. Mm. And in my own life, for my own example, as I work through that, because as the leadership circle is, is very good about making you look at your own your own internal growth first before you get to actually help other people look at theirs. So in my own internal growth, I looked at how when I grew up in my family of origin, I had a very traditional family with a very controlling father and a stay-at-home mom. And in my house, we did everything we could to make sure my dad was happy. And I was very complying. I really tried to always be pleasing. I tried to make sure that, you know, I everything ever to fix things. And I still am that go-to person to fix things. And I realized that that was a wonderful way to help my family cope with that, right? Mm-hmm. Like to help a child who's the fixer, who's the go-to person who kind of helps even the keel is a great thing, but it might not have been such a great thing for me to carry into my own adulthood where I'm still the fixer and I'm still saying yes to things I don't want to say yes to. I'm still saying things, yes to things that just make other people happy. And so when I took this assessment, my pleasing skill was way at almost like a hundred percent, right? And my belonging was like a hundred percent. And those are really saying that I like to give up some of my power in order to make people happy. Um, And these are things that are great skills and great strengths. But again, if you overuse them, you can only imagine what happens if you say yes too often. And if you feel like you have to um, belong and by belonging, you're making everyone feel happy. Um, I can more than imagine, Deidre, so much of what you're talking about. (laughs) You're like peering into my soul a little bit here. (laughs) So yes, (laughs) it makes total sense. I think I started off my career as an engineer with Exxon and, and literally that was a very long time ago in 1986 and, um, you know, trying to please and fit in at a large, um, probably fortune five company at that time, a large company as an engineer, um, manager with really a white male dominated organization. Of course, this is a long time ago and things have changed since then, but at the time, it was really difficult to be a female engineer. And yeah, so sure. um, my pleasing tendencies did not help me there because I really needed to be a little more, uh, I needed to learn to be a little more cocky, a little more stand up for myself, a little more courageous in my wording. So I think this piece about learning that has really helped me. And I see it in clients all the time. I'm amazed at some of the things when we ask these questions and they start thinking through it, they stop and pivot and say, 
what, you know, what am I thinking about? Why do I still do this? Right. Um, and I have, I have had so many client aha moments around if they look at those patterns and assumptions, they look at like what they're carrying with them, um, that they shift. Yeah. It's so amazing. And, and I love how you pointed out these conversations that you have and these really significant questions you ask go deep within a short amount of time, maybe 20, 30 minutes. And that's so beautiful. Again, like how we can dig in and have these aha moments and explore different really significant parts of our life in a relatively short amount of time when given the space. And Deidre, I want to ask you if you would, there's the the phrase that you used several minutes ago up until now. Mm-hmm. And I love that phrase. Yes. And Thank I you. would just like to invite you to say a little bit more about that, because if someone is listening who could walk away with that up until now phrase, I feel like it has been so impactful in my own life and I love being reminded of it. So I would love it if you would say a little bit more about that. Yes, I would love to. So I think as we as we look at debriefing the leadership circle, we know that a lot of this piece about what's happened before us is our up until now. So mm-hmm. it's everything that's happened up until now. And as coaches, we always think that our clients have the power and the and the all of the resources they need to be able to help themselves. We're just facilitators in helping them help themselves and helping them see. And so I think it's such a beautiful piece to think about. You had all this, all of these things going on in your life. And then now you can actually draw that line and say, okay, that's up until now. All this has been before. Now I get to actually make the choice. What do I carry forward with me? Yeah. And that's the beauty of up until now. Like it doesn't have to be your story for forever, right? Although most of us have a lot of pieces of our story forever that we tend to, I say to clients often, you know, you put all the rocks of your, your up until now in your backpack and you carry along with them. And what you can realize is that you can say, okay, up until now, I'm going to, I'm going to take some of those rocks out. I'm going to set them to the side. I'm going to like not use them anymore and let them go because up until now they've been really helpful in many ways, but now they're not, they're no, no longer helpful for me. It sounds so simple as you describe it. And (laughs) in my own journey, at least it is, it's much less simple in practice than it is in, in talking about it. And I curious, what are your thoughts around why it is so challenging to take some of those rocks out and just relieve ourselves of some of the weight that we often carry around. Yeah, I think it's so hard because some of those rocks have got us to where we are and they're almost like a security mm-hmm. blanket for us. So mm-hmm. I had a client at, at a very senior level that I worked with who um, was always driven and driven so much to the point that he was wearing himself out and exhausting all of his team. And when I was brought in to coach him, when we talked about these, we did a leadership circle assessment and we talked about these questions. And one of the, the pieces that he talked about influencing him when he was younger was that he grew up very poor. His father was really ill for a very long time. Um, he, he, he was one of many children and within his family, they, they went on food stamps. His mom had to go work. Um, he started working at the age of 10 with a paper route and never stopped. He was always responsible for making his own money. 
going to, you know, paying his own college. And as we talked about this, and we talked about these reactive tendencies, you could see that he was really overusing things like ambition and drive. Um, and he, you could see that he was really exhausting himself. And this was not going to be, this is not going to be good over the long term. And as he was telling this story, and then we were looking at the results, I just asked him the question. I said, do you still need to be so concerned about not having anything to eat and not providing for your family? And he stopped and really thought about that for such a long time. And he's like, no, but he's like, of course not. Like, I, I don't need this at all. I could retire today if I wanted. And so I said, well, what is holding you back from that? Like, what is holding you back? And he's like, it is this immense fear in me that I will be poor again. And I think that's what makes it so difficult is there's this immense fear around many of these things that again, ambition and drive are such beautiful things to have in life, but the overuse of them is then causing you to act them. It's causing that to get in your way in a million ways. And for him, his wife was upset because he was gone all the time. He never spent time with his children who he both adored his wife and his children. But this internal piece was saying, you have got to keep making money. You cannot get off this track or you will end up poor and your family will end up destitute. So I think that's a beautiful example of why it's so hard. Yes. And, you know, the things that come to mind for me as you're sharing that story is those beliefs that get, I mean, they're literally programmed into our brain, right? Like those are our neural pathways and they're strong. I have a a friend who calls it like the, the blueprint that's in our brain from childhood. And so what, I mean, from your experience and particularly even following this path of the conversations around the leadership circle and the insights there, where do where where does one go from this conversation and these aha moments? And wow, okay, so I don't have to stay in this fear. But again, like for me, it comes back. I can recognize, oh, I don't need to stay in this fear anymore. And also, my brain keeps going there. So, yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts on where to from there? Well, that's why I love the make life less difficult piece, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think the way to make it, to, the way to actually imbibe it and to actually see results in it is to take these small steps. Because again, just like we said, these are neural pathways that have actually done us really well. Like for this, this particular client, if he wouldn't have worked so hard, he wouldn't have gotten to go to college. He wouldn't have gotten to help feed his family. All of those things were beautiful survival skills for him at the time. So you can see the fear in letting them go. So I think what I, I love about the make life less difficult is it allows you to make it a little different, a little less difficult. It allows you to take a little step versus saying, okay, today I'm just going to forget that I'm really not going to be poor. Like I'm not going to be poor. Why am I so silly? I'll just stop doing that. Right. That is virtually impossible. But like to be able to say, okay, well, maybe I could take I could use my vacation this year and take the take my family on a nice two week vacation, right? That's a step, yeah. and it does help, and it helps with your wife and your children that they see you're taking time off. It probably gives your employees a break as well. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like this piece of 
it doesn't have to be you're aware of it and you just shift it. I wish we could all be like that, myself included. Right? I'd love to say, yes, I'm going to do this. And within you know a few months, I, it was completely done and I never went back to it. But I love the thought of being in awareness of it and then thinking, what's one small thing I could do that would make this, that would actually address what we're talking about? Yeah, it's really beautiful. And the 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 word that's coming to mind for me that I hear in you as you, I heard it earlier in our conversation too, when you were recognizing, hey, the rocks that I'm carrying around, you're carrying around, they served us well at certain times. And and even now in, in describing this shift of like, okay, it starts with awareness and then look for something small, compassion. This is this is the word that's coming up for me. And I, I so appreciate the compassion that I hear in you as you're talking about this. Definitely, because this is hard work, right? This is not yeah. something we can snap our fingers. And often I'll use the phrasing, you know, can you actually put the backpack down and just take out one rock? Like what would that one rock that you could take out be? And for the client we were just talking about, it was a vacation. It was like, I could take, he hadn't taken vacation for, I don't know how many years, but it was like, I could take a two week vacation. And I'm like, we take that rock out. We're just going to lay that down. The rock was, I can't take any time off for vacation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just working with another client this week and she was feeling that she was really taken advantage of all the time. Again, into that complying piece about trying to make everyone happy and she was talking a lot about, you know, how everyone took advantage of her, how people that weren't doing as much work as they should, they would dump work off on her. Um, and she was at a senior level in a, a tech organization. And when we were talking, it was really interesting because as we were talking about this, she realized that she'd never asked, she'd never voiced that to her boss, right? Wow. She actually said, hey, I think this is unfair she complained a lot, right? But she never actually said, no, I can't do this because I have this. And so again, the small rock there is the rock that you take out of your backpack there is saying, hey, I don't have time to actually do this extra piece of work. And it's the rock is the ability to say no when you need to say no and set your own boundary, yeah. right? Yeah. And again, I, I love because it could, it can be a such a relatively small shift and also can make an enormous difference. And it's not also you're going to make this is the the piece I work with clients on as well as sometimes they'll say to me, "Oh my gosh, I did it again. I said mm. yes again when I shouldn't have." And I'm like, "That's okay, right? Mm. This is not a this is not a completely done, you know, one and done situation." But yeah. the that you realize that you did it again is going to help you the next time to, to keep that boundary of saying, no, I can't do this. Or can I do this in six months? I cannot do it now. Or could we find someone to help me with on it? Um, but it really is that piece about knowing that it's a hard job too. And knowing that you're not just going to, it seems so, so common sense just to say, Mm -hmm. I will no longer be critical because that does not help me, but it doesn't work that way. (laughs) (laughs) doesn't doesn't at least not for me no and I and that encouragement for self-compassion that's been in my own life something that has made life less difficult is learning about self-compassion developing a practice of self-compassion having others in my life like you who speak 
compassion to me when I'm not in that space of giving compassion to myself. Um, because it's so easy to be hard on on myself. And I see that in others too. Like that's kind of our go-to to to be hard, to beat ourselves up, to be so yeah, harsh and judgmental towards ourselves. Yes. And I, I, I love that. I think it's a Brene Brown quote. I know it's part of her philosophy that she says, you know, assume everyone is doing the best they can, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and for me as a coach, I always assume that. I know I know that even though people may do things and including myself that are like, you think that's really stupid. <laughs> you know that they're doing the best they can. And I, I yeah. feel that way about myself too. I always, I say to you know, people, when I make a mistake, I say, look, 90% of the time, I'm really good at what I do, but 10%. Yeah. I sometimes I'm not so great at it and I'm okay with that. I'm just going to try to keep working on the 10%, but I'm not going to beat myself up about it because I'm trying really hard and I'm doing really good most of the time. I love that. It's interesting because the, the thoughts that come into my mind is I realize it's easier for me to say that towards other people. Oh, they're doing the best that they can. Mm-hmm. But then to turn that back to myself, right? It's another layer of self-compassion. And it's a great uh, takeaway and self-awareness piece for me of like, oh, well, if I believe this, I can believe this about myself too. And it doesn't mean I'm going to get it right or accurate every single time. And yet I'm doing the best I can in each moment. Yeah. It's always that great question that we ask about, well, if this was your best friend, what would you tell he or she, right? If this was your, your, if this was your employee, what would you tell them? If this was, you know, if you, we are always more compassionate with other people than we are with ourselves. Um, In many of these cases, like we always give other people a break. Most of us, I mean, that doesn't always, that's not a blanket term, but, but many of us give other people a much deeper break than we give ourselves. Why do you think that is? Where do you think that comes from? I'm not sure. I mean, I think for me, it came from like my childhood growing up. Like my father was very much, you are what you do. And you are, you, like he would use the phrase a lot to whom much is given, much is expected. Right. So for me in my own hardwiring, I feel like it comes from the fact that I have been told I have a lucky life and I've been told I have a privileged life. And I do, I I recognize that I do, I have had a lucky life and a privileged life. So I feel like the expectations of what I do should be high, right? And again, that is my own internal drive talking to me, right? Mm -hmm. Because when I look at other people, it doesn't matter whether they're lucky or not lucky, or I always am willing to say, I'm going to stand in non-judgment on this. They're doing the best they can with the capacity that they have. Yeah. I I feel like you and I could chat for a long time about our fathers and <laughs> the uh, a whole other podcast. The environment that we grew up in. <laughs> yeah, so interesting. But it is um it is interesting again, kind of going back to that question of what shaped us Mm-hmm. from earlier in our lives and you know my sisters and and brother and I have talked a lot about this but you know for for our case I mean in our family it was you were appreciated and loved for what you did yeah, yeah. not just for being part of the family it was like no you have responsibilities and you need to be contributing and the harder you work 
the more reward and praise and love you get. <laughs> yes, that's the old, what we used to call the old Protestant work ethic, right? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you work hard, if you work hard, you're a good person and you'll do well in life, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, good. I was just gonna say, part of my tempering is I, my third son is autistic and he's 25 and he has a lot of things in life that are difficult for him, right? So mm-hmm. that life less difficult for him is also really intriguing for me. But I think I also realized too, that so many people struggle with things that we don't know they struggle with. Right. Mm, yeah. And, and to actually hold things against them or hold them to an accountable piece that is just so difficult for them to do seems really unfair. So I think having him in my life, he's been a wonderful temper. Of, mm. I think I've been a better mother for, because I have him. Because I just realized that not everybody has to push through everything to get somewhere. You know, there's Mm. space for everyone. And so I think that's been huge an influence in my world for myself and for my clients. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating because the thought that comes to mind with you mentioning your son and also thinking about the younger generation and how. You know, the younger generation entering the workforce today, it seems like they look at the generations ahead and are like, I don't want to work myself to, you know, just to retirement and then have a heart attack the next day because I've been so stressed out for my entire life. I don't want to, you know, kind of sell my soul to the to the workplace. There's so much more talk about work-life balance and what's that mean and how do we get there? And I also hear some of the older generation saying, well, we did it this way. So you have to kind of earn your place and you have to work hard and and things like that. And I don't know if I have a really clear question around this, but I'd love your thoughts of, because I, I feel like it's so important for us to honor this younger generation. And there's so much wisdom that's yeah. coming along and lessons learned. And also um, it can be hard for the older generations to accept this different approach because it does look different and I think probably has repercussions on our workplaces and how we organize and and things like that. So I'm just going to stop talking and see where you go with it. I love that. And I, I, you know, it's one of the things that I put in my basket, a basket of things I hope for things I hope for that we take time to listen to the younger generations about this work-life balance and that we realize that this is probably better for humanity as a whole, that we have more time, we have more balance, we have more service. Mm-hmm. And then it's in my basket of wishes is also, we, I hope we learn from the pandemic that we don't all have to go to the office for you know 60 hours a week in order to be successful. Yeah. Um, in there with my basket of wishes about my younger generation. And um, I have three sons, one that's 30, one that's 29 and one that's 25. So you can imagine that I hear a lot about this from my own group of my own little focus group, we'll call them. Yeah. And I love the fact that they're, I love the fact that my oldest son talks about when he has kids, he's going to take paternity leave. Nice. I love the fact that my middle son um, talks about work-life balance and how, you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't want to do certain things because he has such a beautiful balance and a beautiful life right now. Mm-hmm. So I hope that we incorporate some of this wisdom in and realize again, as we talked about pros and cons of things, right? Like we realize that there may be some cons, but there's also a huge amount of pros. 
-hmm. and how do we take those pros in? So I really do see in my client work and with my own, as I said, my own small focus group of three boys, um, I really see this need for change and I see the need for things to move forward in a way that's going to make life diff less difficult for everyone. And I think holding change is always hard, right? And change is always hard. And, and many of us have gotten to where we are based on the old system. But as we look at our world, we know that, it, that there's a lot of volatility, uncertainty. We know that. And so we know things are going to change. So my thought is, how do we lean into the change that works for us as humanity? Mm -hmm. And I that making life less difficult to me runs back to what is best for the world as a whole? What's best for humanity? What's best for people? Mm -hmm. right? Yes. And accepting the fact that things can be done successfully and different. Yes. And I think about my own upbringing, which was work hard all the time. Like it's not okay to sit down and take a break and my mom is 81 now and in her health and her body is it's forcing her just this week. She got sick and had a fever for a few days after a kind of stressful time where she really pushed herself. And it's tough because I've talked with her about, you know, it's okay to sit down and take a break during the middle of the day and this and that. And, and yet it is so ingrained in her and, yeah. and then my siblings and I, we see it in ourselves and we have like, we have more consciousness and awareness of it, but we're trying, and we're trying to change it. So then when I look towards the next generation and I see them much more actively pacing themselves and saying, it's okay if I take time off and I change jobs and I advocate for myself early in my career it's a beautiful thing. And also like, I just see the resistance to it. And I, um, yeah, I feel really passionate that we need to figure out ways to just support this and continue this. And, yeah. and, and I guess like coming back to that point, like things can be done extremely well and successfully and with the pacing oneself. Yeah. I was just talking to a leader this morning about um, coming back to work from the pandemic. And I it, I was thinking in my mind, how lovely it's settled this way, because she was talking about how, well, we realized in our unit where we're actually customer facing and need a lot of collaboration that we need to get in the office. Mm -hmm. But we also realized that we don't need to be in the office every day. And so she was mm -hmm. talking to me about how um, she has one day Wednesdays that everybody comes in. And then they have to pick two other days and they can pick whatever two days they want. Um, and nice. so, and then two days are at home. And I thought this is such a lovely way for all of this to percolate down to is to like realizing that there's benefits to be in the office together. And there's also benefits to being working remotely. And so I, I keep that hope in my heart that we will keep moving towards something that is yeah. a beautiful blend of the old and the new and that that works in a different way. And you're so right. Like it, it works very efficiently. You know, we we saw through the pandemic that people could work remotely. And many of the organizations I were working with, um, especially like construction companies, you know, real estate development companies, their work went up. They had their best years ever during the pandemic when everybody was working from home. Mm -hmm. So I always hope that we keep these lessons. And as we talk about making life less difficult, it makes life a lot less difficult if you don't have to drive your hour commute in five days a week. That's a yeah. huge 
making life less difficult. If you can, if you can watch your kids get on the bus at, at you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning um, and get them off the bus at three o'clock while you're actually sitting here doing work and taking a 10 minute break to do that, it's so much less difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that again, those changes, I hope stay and I hope we become a common to them and they are then a norm for us. Yeah, absolutely. I I have so many different thoughts, Deidre, and I'm, I'm part of me wants to take us back to a little bit around the leadership circle. And I'm wondering if you would share a little bit more about what this offers a leader, insights, um, the questions that you talked about during the, the debrief process are incredibly powerful, incredibly impactful. And I'm wondering you know, perhaps someone's listening that's intrigued by this and to share a little bit more about what this, there's so many different assessments out there and things. um, What is unique about the leadership circle and what does it specifically offer leaders? I think for me, what's so unique about this particular 360 with the leadership circle is that it looks at creative competencies. So those are all those things that over the last 50 years of leadership work, we know that they directly affect leadership competence and leadership effectiveness, right? So there are things like relating, achieving, self-awareness, authenticity, and systems awareness. So things that we know that if you have more of a caring connection, if you're more courageously authentic, if you're a systems thinker, if you're purposeful and visionary, if you foster team play, there's well-founded research and research done by the leadership circle yearly um, on how these things are are affecting leadership effectiveness in a positive correlated way. And that you can find in many assessments, like, you know, here's what a great leader needs to do. But I think what the leadership circle brings, and these questions are are the start of that piece, is it brings this reactive tendencies, which are controlling, protecting, and complying. And those are the things that we talked about that are strengths. So there's strengths that we may have needed and used and may have been very helpful to us but that we can overuse. And Mm. so controlling is all about like moving against something like using your will. So like I can fix this. So in times of stress, we tend to go to the reactive and we drop into our survival behavior. And we're, if we're controlling, we say, I can fix this. I'm going to be autocratic. I'm going to be driven. I'm going to fix it. It's going to get done. I'm going to be safe. This is going to work. And in protecting it's people that use their head. And that's all about being arrogant, critical, and distant. And you're saying, I'm going to use my head and or I'm smart. I'm, I'm smarter than you are. I, you're not doing this right. Um, you're getting too close to me. So I'm going to push you away a little bit. It's using your head to really say, Hey, I'm going to protect myself by that. Hmm. And complying is using your heart. It's like being conservative, being pleasing, belonging, and passive. And it's really using your heart to say, I'm going to lean into my heart and I'm going to give a little bit of my power away, or sometimes a lot of my power away in order to make everyone happy. Right. And so typically we fall into one of those. Sometimes we fall into all three. Um, But when we're there, we know that that really drains our energies. And we know that we're also working from that survival spot. So with the leadership circle, we're always trying to help our clients understand how do we move out of that creative energy, which we know is draining and comes from a place of survival into this creative competencies, which comes from a, which actually increases our energy and comes from a place of purpose and vision. It comes from a place of wanting to actually make things better and 
using all of our creative strengths to do that. And so I love the fact that this gives you not only here's what you need to do, right? Uh, to be better by like giving you your evaluations on these creative competencies, but also what's getting in your way. Um, and it's not a prescriptive model. So every time you do a debrief, every time I, as a coach do a debrief, I come to it really with the only thought of, I'm going to help facilitate this person with this particular profile. There's no prescriptive things about saying you need to raise this to 90%. You need to raise this to this. You need to do this. It's really there's a circle in the middle that says identity, and that's what everything flows to. What is this person's identity in the world that they are now? And how can they lean into their own identity to be the most effective leader that they can be? And I think for me, because it's not prescriptive, because it is so individually customized for each person's internal operating system and each person's profile on how they show up in their own identity, I think it holds so much value. It's really fascinating. Again, I have so many different thoughts coming to mind as you're describing that in those areas of, um, or the three of them, the control, protection, compliance. And I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking of other people that I know and have worked with. And and also to realize, um, as you say, we react out of these places with I mean, initially with no awareness, it's just automatic and we're wired up like for all the reasons that we've kind of already talked about. And I love this idea of figuring out how to shift into the creative space, right? Like the end goal is still the same, but to move out of that reactive space into that truly creative space, that's, that's so intriguing and beautiful and like, wow, okay, that's, that's what we really need in this world that is so complex and challenging. And yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I worked with a client quite a few years ago now who was, who was very, he was a PhD, really a brilliant guy. Right. And he fell into that protecting like distance, critical and arrogant. Um, And as we talked about it, um, we were talking about accountability partners and we were talking about ways that he could work within this. And his story was that his father was an academic and he really believed that unless you had a PhD, you, you, you really weren't worth your salt. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, he hadn't wanted to get a PhD, but his father wanted him to get a PhD and his father was very critical of everything in his life. And here he winds up in this nice critical arrogance and distant space. And so two things happened with him that I thought were so fascinating about this piece about moving to creative, the reactive to the creative energy. One was we put together an accountability circle for him to use. Um, and he picked people that could help him with moving out of being critical, like moving out of this whole area of arrogance, critical and distance. How could he pick one big thing to do? And how could that actually help him move out of this protecting? And he, and the one thing he did, which surprised me, was he put his, I think his son was 17 at the time, but he was still at home. He put him in the critical and his accounting, his accountability partnership. So once a month, he would go to his son and it was on Sunday nights at like six o'clock and they would sit down and he would say, tell me how I've been doing on my critical thing. And it was so interesting because when he put it, it surprised me because normally the accountability group you have is like your work group, right? Yeah. And said, Deidre, this, my son will be able to tell me more than anybody 
if I'm being critical. And he said, Deidre, that was the best thing I could have ever done. He said, every Sunday for every month, one Sunday, we sat down, we had an hour, hour and a half discussion about how I'd been critical and how that made him feel and how I might be able to change my behavior and be less critical. So that was huge for him. And the second thing he did was find a thought partner in his senior leadership team to tell, to make a hand motion. You know, we're like trying to figure out hand motions that he could do during meetings that would tell him he was being overly critical, right? And the first time he did this, they were sitting in a team meeting around the conference table and it was, it was actually to touch his forehead, right? Mm -hmm. So as he was talking to me about it in the weeks afterward, we both burst into laughter because he said, what happened was this guy was sitting there you know, touching his head every time he thought he was being too critical. And he said about halfway to the meeting, he just smacked his hand against his forehead. And <laughs> he, this guy both burst into laughter. And so then he said, then I had to come clean and explain <laughs> to people what I was doing, because they were all like, what is going What's on? Going on? <laughs> and said, explaining to them what I was doing. He said, you would not believe the shift that made just that they knew I realized I was being critical and oh. I was trying to watch my behavior. And so I've, again, that moving that critical, and he was amazingly intelligent and amazingly kind guy, but his way of organizing his team was to be highly critical and highly arrogant because he was the expert, right? Mm. He had the degree. He was the expert. Again, all those beliefs and assumptions that you brought along with you, he was able to take that rock out of his backpack that I am in power and I'm the one that knows everything and put that to the side. Um, And that again is a beautiful way of thinking about how that creativity can actually, you don't have to be critical. You move your critical up into the collaboration, fostering team play, caring connection. You move all that critical up into the creative and you still get the same stuff done. It just gets done in a more sustainable way. What a beautiful story. I got I know, love that. Especially like with his son. I mean, wow, that is amazing. And something about him must have realized that, you know, something about him must have realized that his son felt that he was being critical and that this might be helpful for them. So, you know, so many kudos to him about realizing that and actually being courageous enough to take the time and be able to be accepting of the feedback. Yeah, (laughs) the courage and the humility. That, yeah. that took like yeah and can you imagine how his son felt like how empowered that must have made listened to empowered cared for that his son might have felt right yeah it, transformational right like that's the word that pops into my mind around that yeah, yeah. so this the question I want to ask you is moving into the creative space does that look a certain way for someone who goes to the protective or the compliant or the like, or, or is it more general than that? I think it's very much more general than that. It's very much where that person needs to go. So again, it's not prescriptive at all. So it's like, what does that person need to lean into in order to move out of that? And so it's very much an individual journey. And that I think is Again, the the training to be certified in this tool is like three full days of training. And the training is really so much about the nuance. Like how do you show up as a good coach with this huge multitude of data that you could literally go in several ways with, right? 
And how do you not allow the client to be overwhelmed by this huge amount of data? Um, and the leadership development plan works with, um, it works a lot with Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy's work on immunity to change out of Harvard, where you're mm. really trying to say, what's the one big thing I could take away from this? And the one mm. thing for him was, the one big thing for the client we were talking about, the critical piece was that I don't need to be the person in the room that knows everything. That was his one big thing, mm. right? I don't have to be the person who has holds the key to all the information, right? Mm. Yeah. And it was with his son as well. Like he didn't mm-hmm. have to be the kind of father that knew everything and that his son knew nothing, right? Yeah. And that was his one big thing. And under that one big thing, there's so many things that shift. Yeah. And so the thought is not to go to each of the little individual dimensions, but to take that big step back, think about what your one big thing is. Think about what your what might get in your way, your liability. And then also think about your vision. Like, where do you want to see yourself as a leader? Because often we're trying to fix things as we talked about before, like we want to fix them, but they're not necessarily fixable. And so it's like, where do we want to go? And then looking at like what your 360 has told you and the insights you've gained for it, how can that help take you there? Hmm. That is nuanced, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And it's, um, I think that desire to fix things, I, it it comes from a good place, it right? <laughs> and it's not always super effective. Yeah. And sometimes it's great, right? Like sometimes you really need that, like just jump in and fix it, right? And then it's yeah. done and you can move on. But yeah. again, it's that piece about recognizing when it gets in your way, yeah. you know, like we talked about, you know, people don't change quickly and they don't change their internal beliefs and assumptions and their patterns and their habits quickly. And so I'm always going to be a pleaser, right? Like I'm never going to be the kind of person if, you know, somebody asked me to do something and I can do it, I'm probably always going to say yes. So what I'm trying to do is just lessen my pleasing so that it doesn't get in my way as much. And it's really interesting when I talk to clients about that, often they'll be so worried that if they're not going to be pleasing, if they're going to decrease their pleasing, they're going to be a jerk. And it's mm-hmm, so funny that they mm-hmm. go from one end of the spectrum to the other. Mm-hmm. Like, well, if I'm not, if I'm going to be courageously authentic and think about like saying what I think and talking about things that are difficult, then I'm going to just, everyone's going to say, I'm just arrogant and critical. Right. And I have never really never in all my many profiles I've looked at, see someone go from that spectrum. Right. Because yeah. you know, the tiger doesn't change his stripes. He just, he's just working on his stripes, right? Yes. Yes. And it's and as someone who falls into that compliance um, pattern, I know for myself, the times that I do set a boundary, I, I might feel like I'm being a jerk, even though I know intellectually to others, it doesn't. <laughs> come across that way, but because it can be so foreign for me to set a boundary and say, no, I cannot do this, or even just not now, um, or I don't want to, all of those things can feel inside of me so horrific. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's not like when you say no to something, you're doing a dance on your, you know, it's like, (laughs) but you're like, oh my gosh, I said no, they really needed me. I should have said yes. (laughs) but you're just flexing that muscle. And I I think it's so interesting that we think if we're going to move out of passive 
it means we're going to be totally aggressive, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it's like, mm-hmm. it, it, we feel like if we let go a little, cause that's our comfort zone. We feel like mm-hmm. if we let go of that, we're going to just tiptoe right over into the, the other end of the spectrum. When, um, again, I've never seen that happen. Right. No, <laughs> no. yeah. We're funny. We're funny creatures are humans, right? But I so love that about humans, right? Like, I think that's the beauty of being a coach is you get to meet all these lovely humans with all of their unique ways of being. And you get to like walk along that path with them to see like, where's it they want to go on that path. And I love the fact that the path is always different. It's never a path for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It really is the beauty of it. Deidre, I, as predicted, would love to continue to ask you questions and go so many different directions. For this conversation, though, as we come towards a close, if someone listening is intrigued by this conversation, the leadership circle, what what would someone do to explore possibly taking the assessment, connecting with a coach who is certified in this yeah, the, the Leadership Circle has a great website just at leadershipcircle.com. So that's an easy one to remember. Um, and I'm always happy to answer questions about the Leadership Circle. Um, so I'm more than happy to give my email so that people can reach out to me. Great. I'll put links in the show notes for for you and also the Leadership Circle website. I am so grateful for this time. And again, I have so many more questions. I would love to hear so many more stories of your journey and beautiful client stories that you have shared. And so thank you so much for this time, Deidre. Oh, it was a pleasure. And and like I said, the topic of making life less difficult just so appealed to me because I do think that that is such a crucial thing that we need to be doing as humans in time. We need to be sitting around helping each other make life less difficult for each other. And um, I think that's just a beautiful positioning of that. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation and episode of the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Editing is done by Joseph Burdock. Artwork is by Emma Burdock. I'd be honored if you took a moment to share this with a friend and or leave us a review. Together, I truly believe we can make life less difficult.